on the edges. Yeah, it doesn't point you in the in the direction you want, yeah, but exactly. it points you back to the normal. Yeah. Okay, I think we're live. I think we have to say welcome to everyone to the uh, second episode of the AI After Work podcast. Simply AI AW. <laughs> and yeah, how do I say that? AI AW. You doesn't get stuck on the word. Doesn't exactly uh, roll off yeah, the tongue, yeah, does it? Work. I think it's yeah. Yeah. So we were middle in the middle of a conversation, so welcome in the middle. But who are we? Henrik Jötberg, uh, one of the hosts. Anders Hartig, one of the AI nerds. Speak one of the AI nerds. Through the na- microphone. Yeah. Sorry. And then and then we have uh, our guest today, Mikael Klingvall. Yep, that's me. Yeah, and uh, I guess uh, let's roll on with the conversation, but uh, I think let it, let's flow a little bit into uh, uh you know, we, we talk a little bit about your background. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, we just continue about Spotify and, and recommender systems. And, and I think this is, of course, a very top, uh, interesting topic. And you started to say that, you know, you get recommendation similar to like mainstream music, which certainly is one complaint that you can have. But, you know, that's really what you try to avoid, especially with the later type of techniques, the word to vec kind of approaches. Yeah, that but it doesn't do. work. Does it work that well all the time? And, and just to share one little anecdote, they... We got a lot of complaints at Spotify at, uh, many, many years ago. This is much better today, of course. But at that time, we had Swedes being recommended Danish rap music. And, and the Swedes were saying, you know, for one, I hate Danish. <laughs> Secondly, I hate rap music. How can I get recommended like, uh, Danish rap music? Uh, and this was you know, the single occurrence. This actually seemed to be some trends. So we need to really look into you know, what's happening here. And uh, then we could see this kind of problem that the recommender system uh, used at that time, the word to wick kind of approach, only could handle like symmetrical relationships. So that means basically if Swedes like Danish music, it assumes that Danish people like Swedish music. And this doesn't really hold in, in reality. So apparently, and I'm not sure if this is true, but the, the rumor is basically that Danish people like Swedish music, but Swedish people don't like Danish music. So this makes the, the whole recommender system algorithm break. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. <laughs> Which is kind of funny. Oops. Uh, yeah. But Mikael, uh, who are you? I mean, like we know it, known each other since uh, several years back. So that's why I, I'm so... 2009, good. actually. 2009. Yeah. I was going to ask you that. When, when did we meet the first time? I was at... Uh, pro Sales. Pro Sales. You were the mad scientist. Yep. Uh, you know, bringing a scientific method into sales. how into sales. <laughs> yeah, the guys who, who is the least scientific, maybe <laughs> that was an interesting one. But yeah, I think I think it's uh, I'm still a bit of a shell shock. Yeah, but it was it was so much fun. But 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 then again, so who who is Mikkel? I, I think you're a role playing guy. You're a, a philosopher to be philosopher of science. Philosopher of science. A uh, uh, futurologist in in your CV at least. Comparative linguistics. Comparative linguistics. So, can you t- <laughs> how did that start up? And and used to make it even worse or even better depends on how we will look at it. Me and Mikkel is both from Sjöhärdsbygden. Uh, so me and Mikkel can Bonos represent. We, we can talk about uh, the the <laughs> West Coast Vesköterpojkarna, uh, <laughs> the guys out in the woods uh, on the west side of Sweden. So tell me your story a little bit. Uh, All right. I'll start um, sort of uh, recently. Uh, I am a sociologist. Uh, Specifically, I deal with organizational sociology. 
and even more specifically, computational organizational sociology. Uh, and then I've been, um, that was my PhD, I was finished in 2009, and then I started to sort of applying my, my uh, modeling skills. Uh, first at ProSales with sales, which was a lot of fun. Uh, and then Hendrik took me to Vattenfall, where I've been a senior data scientist since 2013. Yeah, about it. And I've been doing mostly quantitative modeling, multivariate statistical analysis. Um, so old school analysis. Yeah. I think we're going to have some real cool topics to talk about. I mean, like just to name a few, we, we need to talk about uh, how uh, your, your role playing Fabless and how you have taken that into also understanding data science, that we will yeah. have a lot of fun with that. We need to talk about, you know, what is a beautiful language? When you're a data scientist, uh, what, wh- why do we like our Perl or our Julia? Julia? Funny, funny thing here so. is that uh, I started out with uh, comparative linguistics. So I've studied uh, Latin, Greek, Sanskrit, uh, Hittite, ancient Swedish, ancient English, Old English, uh, Gothic, and various dead languages. And I mean... No Klingon? It's not a dead language. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how to take the linguistic uh, mindset into data languages? What, what, what did you think about? Have you made any? Yeah, actually, I, I, I mean, I have an analytical bent, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to put it mildly. So, uh, of course, I've been trying to sort of rationalize my journey from Latin to Julia. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, um, learning languages is rather sort of, picture this, you're trying to, to translate text in a language you don't know. Your only tools is a book of grammar of the language and uh, what's it called? Dictionary. And it's up to you to decode the text using these tools. Uh, and here comes the thing that's actually informed my thinking ever since, is that you always keep in mind that the author of the text has, a, has something to convey. It has a message. He means something. There is sort of a truth to the text. There's something going on there that you can actually try to uh, decode. You mean some semantic of some kind? or what? Uh, No, actually, it's sort of, sort of the... the, the the, uh, the interpretation of the message mainly. So, what, what's he trying to say? So, why did he, what, what? Why was he passionate enough to put something on paper and words? Yeah, but I mean, it, it's, it's a human writing something. It's just another language, which means that um, I, as another human speaking another language, if I want to say the same thing, I'd use my language. So, which means that there is some sort of uh, story I can follow, and just have to sort of build a model of that using grammar and dictionary. And that is sort of um, the birth of my sort of analytical mindset. And, and this now, could you sort of do the, could you follow the logic from Latin to Julia in this way? Um, it's a bit of a roundabout way, but yeah. Um, so I started with, with linguistics, and then I got into sort of ethnography, ethnology, 
and sort of study of ancient cultures. Uh, and then I got into sort of pure social structures like sociology, uh, where I stayed. And, and um, I got interested in sort of uh, organizations. I mean, how the fuck do organizations work? Because mostly they don't. Yeah, and this is an interesting one. You're in sociology and in and, and, and these type of sciences, and, and all of a sudden now you're, you're, you're applying this and, or your, your mind is taking you into classical you know, business uh, organizational theory. Yeah, yeah. And, and actually, there was, that was... When I started my, my, my postgraduate studies, my, my PhD, uh, the thing I wanted to do, I wanted sort of experiment on organizations see if i tweak this what happens of course no organization will allow me to do that <laughs> they want to survive. in real life yeah exactly uh, so i realized quickly that okay i have to simulate these organizations so and then i had to learn to program and that was java yeah. so that was, was java your first language actually yeah and i taught it myself and um And what was your PhD in essence? Because I think there is a connection to you, what you have been studying in your PhD to what we need to do to succeed with data and AI. So I, I really want to explore. Yeah, definitely. Um, so let open, let's open that box. Um, my PhD is all about the conflict between... Uh, so first of all, it's about organizations. And the conflict between adaptability and efficiency. Uh, basically, how much do you invest into making mistakes for the future? Yes, that's the adaptability part. Yeah, that's the adaptability part because you have to make mistakes in order to have um, a preparedness for um, or a contingency plan. Um, in cybernetics, it's called the law of requisite variation. Um, you need to have a repertoire of responses as diverse as the environment you live in. Um, most organizations, or at least commercial enterprises, um, tend to stagnate and sort of ossify, solidify, become fossils. Living fossils, And this was actually um, <laughs> noted um, by Arthur Stinchcomb, which is sort of Uh, in a book from 1965, when he just cynically, um, well, it must be originally summed up in, uh, most organizations once established, most organizations once established uh, do not change. So you think that the adaptability, or is it fair to call it innovation, or like R&D kind of operation, or is there a difference between uh, Yeah, that? that's an application of it. So would you say that... Um, There is a strong correlation between the size of a company and the level of adaptability? Not necessarily. But bigger companies tend to develop rather monolithic bureaucracies, yeah. uh, and that puts a dampener on things. But the, because the way I have to some degree understood this, uh, when we have talked about this in the past, it's a little bit like you're on this maturity curve. So you're an in innovator, you, you, you start building a business, and then you start becoming successful at something. Yeah. And then when you start uh, becoming successful at something, you, your production grows, uh, and you start chasing efficiencies. And, yeah, you, and can, you, no, you, you, tr you tend to capitalize uh, on your cash cow. 
yeah, you capitalize on your cash cow and you and you basically make the company more and more efficient towards that one thing, cash cow, yeah. whatever you're doing. And this is now the adaptability goes down, the heterogeneity goes down. Yeah. So you become more and more homogenous yeah. uh, as an industry, as an organization. And ultimately, when you're now entering into some sort of paradigm shift, or basically now we, uh, if we talk about data and AI, we have our old legacy domain organizations who has been chasing efficiency and homogeneity for a process that has been looking in one way. They know don't have the adaptability, they don't have the heterogeneity in terms of other skills needed in order to adopt or reinvent the core business. Exactly. In a nutshell. In a nutshell, yeah, it, it's, it goes back to so, um, Apple's commercial of 984, think different. Was that 984? Was it later? Think different. The think different was later. 1984 was the first. Uh, that was the running. You remember this? Oh yeah, that was a stab at the IBM. Yeah. Uh, 1984 was the equivalent with the Orwell. Yeah. Definitely. And it was a stab at IBM. Yeah, I think different was later. Think different was later. Yeah, and that, and that is sort of uh, that sort of um, summarizes the law requisite very uh, variety is that you need to have a reservoir of different thoughts within your company because. If you don't, you don't have any way to respond to a change in your environment or your market. Yeah. Because, I mean, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Essentially, yes. But and, 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 and in, in some ways, I think this is the hardcore truth about uh, the, the challenges with adopting data and AI. Because, yeah, yeah. Now, because now we have a, a specific example of where we need to change and adapt to new types of tools or, or, or competences. And of, of course, then it's not going to happen until you, you put that into the repertoire next to your hammer. And, and then, of course, uh, did you have any, I mean, like going back to your PhD now, did you, did you, did you, is there an optimum balance here between homogeneity, you know, how to think? Because I can understand also if you, if you take it too far, you have anarchy, right? If you have only yeah, adaptability, you don't have, you have positive no, cash flow. You don't have, you know, you have, you have an experimentation. Or you have you have an experimental organization, but you don't have real production or efficiency yeah. in production. And you make too many mistakes. Too many mistakes. So, what was the outcome? Could you sort of simulate this in some ways, or how, what? What was the yeah, core idea? Yeah, problem is that these were some simulated organizations, so um, I have no way of sort of taking that back to to the real world. Um, because that would entail doing decades of studies on actual organizations and sort of trying to gauge their adaptability coefficient or yeah. something like that. And uh, I never did that. You never did that. <laughs> no, that's cool. But, but anyway, but 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 um, it, it, it's fairly easy. Uh, I mean, I mean the the, the Stinchcomb's observation from nineteen sixty five. That organizations once established tend not to change, is still true. And do you think it? it do you think the underlying root cause is what we are talking about here? The, yeah, this yeah. mechanism. Yeah, definitely, because um, most companies are defensive or become defensive once they've been successfully established. They want to keep um, doing what they're good at, and they want to. Um, Basically, it, it, it's, it's like a dopamine system. Yeah. They, they get locked into their own some dopamine loop. Yeah. This, this process brought us to success and we'll keep doing it because we like it. 
I guess you've heard about the, the Kodak experience. And the Kodak moment. Yeah, yeah. The moment. Classic. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I guess you can probably describe it better than I can, but, but you know, the, they were the, the biggest like uh, camera manufacturer in the world and, and they focused on analog cameras. And um, they actually apparently heard that they had some person in Kodak that invented a digital camera back yeah. in the 1980s or something. And uh, they tried to explain the, the motivations for how this could be an improved user experience, but it basically got shut down because they had this kind of weird KPIs of the better resolution, yeah, yeah. Uh, the better user experience, and that was the only thing they did. So they completely stopped working with that. How would you describe the, the Kodak moment or the problems that uh, they had? And, and that basically, you know, were went in bankruptcy in one year or something, 2008, if I remember yeah, correctly. Um, yeah, but the, it becomes... <laughs> Companies tend to build themselves or, or trap themselves in their own success story. Uh, which means that it's very, very difficult to kill your darlings. And it's very, very difficult to entertain the notions of alternative alternatives to a primary cash cow, because your entire company is geared towards, I mean, you recruit the people who actually um, already work with the stuff, and you sell it to customers who love your stuff. Um, and usually, um, if we sort of take a sort of sidestep into business intelligence, is that most companies, um, they're um, sending surveys to their customers. Uh, not to people who don't buy the services or products. So which means that they don't have, they, they only get um, people who are already positive to the products reviewing or, or is answering their questions. Um, which means that usually the customer says, yeah, yeah, we'll keep using our products, of course. But then yeah, something better comes along and more and more the, the customer stock starts dropping. But the customers still remain, are still positive to your products. Which means that you're underestimating the rate of, of uh, loss of your market. Okay. Could we so call it, it like a confirmation bias problem that you're basically looking for people that do... It's, 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 it's not a confirmation bias. It's just that they're not entertaining um, the notion of asking outside their peer group. It's just doesn't happen. I mean, why would you ask them? They're not interested in our products. But I think this, what you asked before, is, has this something to do with size of the company? Maybe yes, but I think we also have examples of huge companies who are, who are over and over again willing to invest and bet on R&D or on new, new ideas. I mean, like Amazon has betted their whole life a couple of times. And uh, so there are several... Come and basically going from how they define themselves from a bookstore to I don't know how you define Amazon today, uh, which I find then the essence of actually understanding this of, of uh, building into building in this adaptability or basically yeah. forcing yourself and putting a quite substantial idea into R and D uh, in order to be actually, adaptable. I think I think very few companies actually uh, invest in in adaptability. Most of the sort of uh, long term successful companies. Uh, what they're good at is sticking to first principles. Oh, I like, what I does that mean? Speaking Elon Musk terms, I what, love it. 
What is uh, it? Actually, Elon Musk is using old sort of sociological terms in this uh, case, actually. But he, he usually speaks about first principles. Yeah. So, yeah. so what is the first principle? I'm the uneducated here. Um, you never compromise on the vision of your um, enterprise. And that's sort of, you, ha- you have, um, what's the English word for existence beratigande? The raison d'être, which is French, of course, but still English. <laughs> your, your 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 purpose to exist. Yeah, I don't exactly. know. Yeah, exactly. Reason for existing. Reason yeah. reason to exist. Yeah, uh, and so uh, I mean, you, you can't have a successful company unless you're actually uh, providing some value uh, to a market through your services or or product, uh, and sort of that is what gives you the, the your reason to exist. Is that someone is actually uh, willing to pay for for what you're offering, and and that is that has to be your first principle. Is that what are we actually um, offering the market? What is the value we're creating? And as long as you keep laser focused on that, I mean, not get sidetracked that hey, we have to maximize our profits or we have to maximize shareholder value, because then you're forgetting your the principle of your business. But and how do you how do you put the principle of your business in relation to adaptability? So how far should you adapt to new things? Uh, I think most successful companies today, they don't think about adaptability. I mean, they get caught up in their success and they and they, uh, they go with it. But if we speak about the, the most valuable companies in the world today, just look at the, the top 10 list of, of the most valuable companies. It's basically all of them tech companies. Yeah, It is the Facebook, the Amazon, the Google, the Microsofts. It's the Chinese companies, the Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, etc. Uh, why do you think these tech companies are the most valuable companies of today? Well, if you just look at the market valuation, it's it's. I mean, they're big companies because they have a scalable, um, they have a scalable offering. I mean, when you can when you can can do your business at scale, then of course you're going to be a big company. Um, But they need to reach that scale somehow. It's something they're doing to, to actually. Use be able to scale yeah, but to that extent. Mo- mostly they have been they have been operating in a void. I mean uh, Alibaba and Amazon didn't have competitors. So they could expand quite freely. But I think also in some way I, I, I like to I like to think about this also about that they are the first to move on a new macro life cycle. Yeah. So it's a little bit like you have the mature uh, we have the agriculture Yeah, you have sort of that's the blue blue ocean um, concept. Yeah, so um, agricultural society moving into industrial society, and then a couple of few companies uh, less than twenty years ago start figuring out what is the next macro life cycle. Data and AI first, in a way, and then basically starts pouring money into that and starts learning by doing, and and then it's a little bit like, you know, while we are now as a normal company or as a legacy company still we are still stuck on the maturity of the old life cycle and we need to now reboot to come into an our, our pioneering stage we have a huge problem now because the traditional companies they are now in, in the pioneering stage 2016 to 20 not even out of the pioneering stage they are they're fumbling around yeah. and at the same time with logic with classical product life cycle management uh, uh, you know Types uh, views. Uh, these guys have already moved away. We are veering quite far from AI. 
Yeah, but it's good. I, I, you know, but I think it's really good because in a way now we all know we all know how the classical. Uh, have you seen the PLCM curve, the product life cycle cash flow curve? Do you know what I'm talking about? So typically you have an idea, and then you need to invest in this idea. So actually your cash flow is negative while you're investing, yeah. and then and then you start moving up, and then you have a a, a chance. In this is sort of this is the old school Boston. Uh, matrix, you go from your question mark, and then you move over to your star. The star, all of a sudden, now you have expansive. You, you, you're investing heavily, but the, the growth rate has now taken off. You have exponential yeah. growth. You, I just want to put a ca caveat here. I mean, BCG is basing their models on sort of the modern organization is using a template from the 1950s. Yeah, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm aware of that. So we should not go too deep into this, but I'm, I'm more into, into the whole idea that from, from a life cycle point of view, they are now in their, their way on their growth stage when we and most other companies is still in their sort of negative investment yeah. stage to set the foundation. Yeah. And I think the, the, the multipliers of how they, are, how they are valued right now is because people's, between the lines are reading, this is my interpretation, that these guys have the foundation in place. And now it's a little bit like, where do we put this foundation to go next? Can, we can use this foundation for the next market and the next market. I don't know, that's yeah. my interpretation. That's not innovation, that just, uh, that's just drift. That's, yeah, but or scope creep. Yeah, it's scope creep in one way, but also they have they, they are now then so much ahead on this new curve, yeah, yeah. so they are simply used cashing in on yeah, it. Yeah. So um, how do you see it? Andish? I'm uh, just moving back a bit, uh, a bit to the tech giants, and, and especially I think your PhD work, which is really interesting about adaptability and efficiency. Yeah. What do you think are different from tech giants in terms of adaptability and efficiency compared to other companies? Because it's something they are doing. Yeah, definitely. That, that really is you know lack of, le lack of legacy. So new companies in general should be better than old companies. Is yep. That Okay, they, they don't have so, sort of the war chests that all established companies have, mm. um, but they don't have to contend with a lot of baggage mm. as sort of legacy because mm. that really brings a lot of the, the, um, the old stolid companies down. Yeah, so, so the old companies, when it comes to moving on in data and AI world, they have a technical deficit. And they yeah, have a data quality because, deficit. Yeah, but, um, I mean, so they are minus to some degree. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and and they're, and they're, and they're definitely feeling uh, the effects of the sunk cost. I mean, they've invested heavily in obsolete structures, obsolete infrastructure that was relevant in yeah. the '90s or uh, early 2000s. Yeah, which is now just keeping them uh, keeping them back. Yeah. What well, What about another angle here? Amazon is coming to Sweden. How do we feel about that? Have you thought about this? What will happen when Amazon enters the Swedish market? There's uh, been different predictions. I on think this. I think they're going to tank. But you know, what's the percentages of of, of, of Amazon penetration I mean, of retail sales? In I mean, we have we have labor laws in Sweden. Yeah, <laughs> and Amazon is not very fond of labor laws. Yeah, what do you think, Anders? Well, um, it's a great question, and. Um, just looking at how they have taken over um, US is, is interesting. And then the question is, you know, will labor laws and the unions you exactly. know, stop Amazon is an asshole company. <laughs> I actually would agree with that. <laughs> but still, uh, they, they are putting innovation in, I think, the first seat, so to speak. I think there is no other company, not even Google, Apple, 
is close to the level of investments they're doing in AI especially. Um, so something at least is causing them to spend that much money on that. And I, I think Amazon is chasing efficiency at the moment. I mean, uh, their investments into AI and automation, uh, that's chasing uh, cost efficiency. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, you don't have to convince me about the, the core <laughs> morality of Amazon. <laughs> I can easily speak about that for a long time. But still, I would argue that the the level of innovation that they have is is rather severe or extreme. Even. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, um, Bezos knows what he's doing, and I mean, he, he's keeping laser focus on sort of the mission or the vision uh, of Amazon. And, and I mean, since Amazon and Alibaba now basically uh, have an oligarchy on the world, uh, we're not going to see any competitors because, I mean, how can you compete at this point? So I'm curious here, guys, of these tech giants, and which one of them do you guys admire the most and why? Which one do you really think is cool? I think I, I'll, I will start with you. I was an Apple fanboy for a long time. And uh, that was basically sort of um, Steve Jobs' attention to customer experience. I mean, and that was their first principle, is that uh, it must be a smooth user experience. But I think you have shifted because you're a fan of someone else nowadays, Mika. Jobs is dead. Yeah, he's dead. So you needed to find <laughs> a new, you need to find a new uh, hero. No, actually, I, I noticed a, a definite drop in quality in in Apple products after Jobs died. Um, and and, I, mean, and I know you don't like you. Mm-hmm. You are the opposite. This is well, opposite. He doesn't like Apple anymore. So then I think it's okay. No, but you, to, for uh, you, Apple would never be your phone of choice. No, not even with Jobs in, in life, even though he was a genius. I love sure. this. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but his morality could be questioned. I would yeah, say. definitely. But he was stuck on France first principle, and that's a good thing. Yeah. In terms of sort of creating a successful company, um, then he was an asshole in other ways. Yeah. Um, but one thing that sort of soured me on, on on Apple to begin with was that their Unix license uh, got stuck in two thousand and seven because they didn't like uh, the GPL licenses of FreeBSD, which means that. Uh, the Unix, the Unix environment in in Apple uh, or in Macintosh products is now obsolete. It it doesn't allow me to sort of do the things I want, and that pissed me off. So I went to Linux instead. But I I think uh, there's another angle here. I mean, like uh, I, I I know you recently, uh, you know, for me you never seem to be a car guy. Uh, uh, true. Uh, and 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 we had a conversation not so long ago about uh, um, uh, uh, you need to you you have put your mind on the the, the automotive uh, All right. uh, experience. So Elon Musk must be some sort of interesting guy here. Um, yeah, and I, I mean Tesla and Elon Musk flew under my radar for quite quite a while actually. Um, because, I mean, cars are uninteresting. Cars, is, uh, they're fundamentally uh, a mode of transport. And I mean, getting from a point A to point B is fucking annoying. And um, um, 
but since yeah, well, I have to have a car. So I, I was recently when I was looking at sort of well, what, should, what sort of car should I, should I go for? Uh, and I realized that there actually are um, mostly, of course, concept cars. Uh, that is no longer a car, but a combination of, of, of um, spaceship, living room, and pet. <laughs> <laughs> and then it gets interesting because you're actually uh, getting rid of sort of the legacy, the, the, the modern era's view of automotion, and you're replacing it with something else entirely. You have to elaborate a bit more. What's this kind of concept car that is a combination of a pet and a living room and whatnot? Uh, the Mercedes Avatar. Okay. Um, which is... I, it's fucking undescribable. It, it's, it, it's, it's designed um, as a social robot. And... and um, it's so a social robot in the sense that you can you should speak with it and, or what interact no it's sort of it, it's designed to be empathic and it's designed to be uh, expressive to um the other traffic you're encountering you can actually signal them because you have a system of of um, scales on the back of it uh, you can use you can program to to sort of express express stuff and and uh, it's freaking awesome. It's never going. It's never going to see the light of day. And then and then, and then the you have the uh, Hyundai Prophecy, uh, which takes the concept of of spaceship and and living room very seriously. Uh, not so much as a pet as the the Mercedes Avatar, uh, but I mean you have a driving mode and then you have a relax mode, and the dashboard disappears, and you don't you don't have a steering wheel. You drive with joysticks. Which means that you get a lot of space. I mean, you get a living room. And it's fucking awesome. And and then here, so then here we have, <coughs> and then we have Tesla. And, and I think Tesla, from coming back to data and AI and the whole idea, we had, I think we had a conversation around this, that they are also some of the few who, in, in, in this, they have, they have managed really to organize their data vertical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, could we elaborate a little bit about, uh, Definitely. about this? Uh, actually, I've, I've been, uh, in recent months, I've been totally fascinated by, by Tesla as a company, as an organization. And, um, I mean, Tesla is not a car company. It's also not an energy company. It's also not a tech company. Uh, what Tesla is, um, it's a learning process. They they have actually taken my idea of, of adaptability and built in the backbone uh, of the enterprise. And how do you see that? Or how did you figure that out? How did you identify that? Uh, I think uh, I realized that when I saw um, Sandy Monroe, which is sort of the automotive design guru. I mean, he, he picks apart cars uh, for a living and tells them how to do it better. And I mean... He, he he has sort of a long history of working with sort of the, the traditional automakers. <clears throat> and and uh, he was there to sort of uh, change things. And he got fed up by, it's very, very difficult to get changes through. Um, especially into sort of uh, consumer cars. Um, because a traditional automaker 
is the car is so decentralized. I mean, you have a whole archipelago of suppliers. You have sort of you have outsourced so much of the construction of the car uh, to so many different players that is in, if, if you want to uh, if you make a change to something, it's going to rattle your whole supply chain, which means that it takes for fucking forever to get anything through. Um, and, and Sandy Monroe, he was he was uh, he picked apart um, the Model Three and, and the Model Y. And then he picked apart uh, the Model Y a few months later, uh, after he picked, picked apart the first one. And in that time, that was, it was like four or five months, uh, Tesla had made uh, 13 changes to the infrastructure of the car. And he was like, this doesn't happen. Uh, and I mean, and the, that um, sort of put me into research mode. <laughs> now now you got nerdy on, on, the, on the topic. Instead. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean... I don't really have any insights into sort of the organizational structure. I, I do know it, it's fairly flat uh, in terms of, of uh, command and control hierarchy. So uh, anyone can raise a concern. I mean, anyone can just raise a hand and stop production and say, this, is, this, this, this doesn't work. We need to do this better. Uh, and people actually, uh, they take this seriously. They are open to change. They are adaptable. They can, uh, they can change their whole production line. Uh, within any given plant. And when they build a new plant, they learn from the other one, make it better. And now we are actually moving into another core topic that I would like to, I was thinking about that we should explore today, which is actually the... What um, do you want? He's helping me to raise up. He thinks I'm falling asleep here. (laughs) (laughs) No, but uh, another key topic here that we have explored for many years has been the fundamental understanding of, of the essence of creating a learning organization yeah. uh, to deal with that adaptability. But ultimately, I think uh, to deal with the whole stress of data and AI on, on a traditional company is simply a, a too big journey to do as a project or do as a transformation. So ultimately, we come back to we need to build in a, a learning organization by design that you know drip feeds us into the new Millennia, so to speak, or, or the yeah. new. Uh, so, so let's let's explore what we mean with with a learning organization, or what you mean with that, and even I, I know you like to talk about uh, the enterprise operating system EOS. Yep. So, so let take us through the journey. What we mean with with a learning organization and EOS. Um, okay, so first, learning. Um, academically speaking, um, you have single loop learning and double loop learning. Uh, and single loop learning is just uh, iterating on existing processes and incremental improvements, basically tweaking your existing operations uh, and making them more efficient. Like this is sort of Taylorism uh, on a grand scale. Uh, but you're not making any radical changes. You're not exploring options. That is double loop learning. Uh, thinking, uh, can we drastically change this into something else? Um, which means basically killing your darlings or, dis- or dismantling old infrastructure uh, and building new stuff on top of it. Um, and that is inherently, of course, uh, a discontinuity to any company because you have to sort of uh, destroy, rebuild, which is painful because, I mean, people lose their livelihoods, 
people lose their positions and they're cast into a sort of a, an entire new context of a new company like what am I supposed to do now all my old networks and friends and processes and routines are gone and I mean people don't like that generally speaking um, so um, a learning organization if you want to take this seriously then you need to have at least on on sort of the, the managerial side who can actually encourage change i mean i mean the i mean the traditional manager uh, is there to keep the peace in a learning organization uh, the manager should be there to break the peace and i mean that doesn't happen in many organizations Yeah, and it's, it, it, so that's also interesting on how does innovation really happen in in the large organizations. I mean, like there there are numerous examples of that. I, I, there's a famous one in in uh, in uh, in Ericsson that uh, radio was stopped. Mm-hmm. We're not going to do radio. We're going to do wireline. Yeah. And then uh, one of these rebellion managers put it to his uh, friends. We we got down to the basement and we continue this. Yeah. And this is real truth, right? So basically. You know the new company where Ericsson is all about today, which is radio, yeah, yeah, definitely, is is sprung out of skunk work. Yeah, and that is, that is that tells you basically everything you need to know about modern organizations. Um, is that uh, first they are inimical to change, they hate change, and despite that, you have companies actually doing innovations because you have people who break the rules. So it's the people that in this. So, but this is interesting yeah. now. The process itself actively discourages innovation. The infrastructure is there to maintain efficiency, efficient operation. Yeah. And despite this, innovation still happens because people realize that we need to do this. This is fun. Yeah. This is cool. But and they break the rules and they do skunk works. I mean. But could we could we take the you know the enterprise to another model where basically uh, so you know you, the innovators or the guys who are really seeing the difference don't need to feel like they're working against the whole organization every time? Uh, could we find ways how this du- double loop learning could actually be organized, uh, or or is this actually inherently very very difficult from within? It is extremely difficult um, because that means you have to have sort of um, the top management team uh, needs to maintain like a 80-20 balance between uh, operations and research and development. It's the old 10-20-70 rule. Yeah. Uh, and I mean... Of innovation, yeah. Yeah, they need to sort of stay on top of research and development. They need to invest in it. They need to encourage it. Um, but they also need to sort of vet whatever sort of things come up there and see can we actually um, put this into operation and does it make a change um, so you have to have the guys at the top need to have um, the engineering experience or the organizational experience uh, necessary to make that call I mean if they, if they are defensive bean counters they're never going to innovate because it's a risk Because you're dismounting your cash cow, you're killing your darlings. 
So logically, it doesn't make any sense, of course. No, it, it never makes any sense um, unless you have truly a truly low-hanging fruit that's not overripe. Um, because then you can just bank on it. So, so, so if we now say Tesla has this ability, and in some ways, then I guess you call them a double loop learning organization. Definitely. I mean, they're every new plant they're building, they're doing something different. They're not repeating their old mistakes. They're making new mistakes. And and what's what's what do you boil that down to? Is it the fundamental top leadership? mentality of Elon himself as the sort of figurehead or how they have they made how have they made this into the cultural process or is it is it there from day one and that's why they can maintain it I I think sort of I don't think Elon him uh, he did of course um, put his mark on his own organization but um, they're not dependent on him to continue to be innovative because they have built in certain things uh, into the organization and in sort of uh, their business. I mean, over the air updates to the cars. Already here, they have built it into the core process yeah. of the car. It's already there. You need to update it. You need to do something new. You can always experiment, try new stuff, uh, and then just send it out to the cars. And, I mean, the same thing with, with, with the, the different plants. Um, they are investing... And that's another topic, that's vertical integration, of course. Uh, because then we come into sort of the, the, the other core component of a learning organization, that is knowing uh, what to insource and what to outsource. Because you need to have a really good grasp of what are the competence you need in-house that drives your business forward. And this is, of course, very interesting in many industries right now. You know, If I take the example of the automotive industry or... or so f- going from course, course stuff is to build cars or to build, uh, if, I, if I take uh, transportation, manu- uh, trucks, stuff like this, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden, if you're repositioning yourself as a, a player in a transport ecosystem, if you're positioning yourself, not number one, my, my key purpose is to build trucks, but actually to move goods, then of course, that whole idea, what is core competence, shifts. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, as we move, further and further into sort of the post-industrial um, economy, more and more business is about automation, roboticization, Roboti- roboticization, I don't know. <laughs> um, and basically that's, you need a tech stack uh, at the core of your business. So, so can you outsource that tech stack? Or no, alt- you can never do that because that is the core IP of your enterprise. The technology that you're actually um, using to produce your, your products and services. But, but isn't this may, one of the main problems then that I'm a car manufacturer, my core tech stack is my car manufacturing plants. Yeah. And here we have IT and IT supply. And you know what, that's a supportive organization and it's even managed by the CIO sitting under the CFO. Um, it tells you everything that we are not considering the data and AI and technologies stack as core. Exactly. Or yeah. I mean, just taking Tesla. I mean, I've been biting my tongue a bit to not uh, interject here. <laughs> you, should. Uh, you should. But uh, I think Elon has said at some point that they are more of a software company than a hardware company. And if you think about pure software companies, I mean, Spotify is 
almost the pure, but I mean, they have a lot of hardware as well that they produce, but the main thing is software. And obviously you can do so many more things in being adaptive mm-hmm. if it's just software. You can do A-B testing in a much more extensible scale than you can with hardware. It's much shorter. But you, but your central repository become a labyrinth. <laughs> Could be, absolutely. But still, the the frequency of updates is significantly higher yeah. for software companies compared to yeah. hardware companies. For sure. And and if you're moving a car like a Tesla into more of a software type of product rather than a hardware one, I guess that would mean that the level or frequency of updates that they can make is significantly higher. Yeah. Um, so w- would you say that this could be something that a lot of other companies could try to copy to, to actually become more like a software company, even like retailers or whatnot, and in that way become more innovative? Or how should they become a more of a learning process? Um, for most companies, that would be a no-go. There is no way in hell uh, they're going to transform. Mr. That's Cynical Mikkel t- talking. Yeah, it's it takes too much effort. They're just going to keep doing what they have been doing until they die. Yeah, that's very cynical, Mikael. Actually, in, in no. The best it's, case uh, scenario, though, you know, if you were to avoid them having to die, what should they do? Flip it. What you know, if they really are serious, what, how do they get out of the hole? Uh, all right, to take a, take um, another automotive example. Uh, Herbert Dies, who was the former CEO of uh, Volkswagen Group, he actually proposed transformation of the Volkswagen Group into an, an um, software-based electric vehicle company. He was replaced. Yeah, but if you, but, but so, so the, the bottom line then is that for any of the companies who, who I, mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm leaning a little bit into Anders here that yeah, I think this is the whole idea here that the, the new world is a little bit like regardless of which domain you're in, regardless if you're producing products or you're selling services, or it's a mortar brick store, your future company will be part whatever domain you're in and part data AI software. I think that's the new realm, but all yeah, companies definitely. in some way at the core is a data AI software company. Yeah, and I'd like to move into also one other favorite topic of yours, which is uh, Julia and programming languages and whatnot. <laughs> but, you know, to, to make that trip, um, if we... Let me make an hypothesis here and see yeah. what if you agree or not with it. But if we hypothesize that you know a lot of companies today are very hardware based, it can be that they have stores that they need to sell products in. It can be that they manufacture stuff. It can be that they need to you know yeah, work with physical things in various ways. And um, Elon at least has shown that they can start to move that to become an increasingly higher level of software that is really determining how the product works. And if you are becoming increasingly into software, that means that means you need to program more and have higher level of code quality, so to speak, in being able to have high quality software. And then, um, you know, how do you efficiently program software or build code? Um, and I I would like to to hear what your thought about you know is this what is really machine learning and how does that differ from like manually programming software? What's your view on that? Can machine learning be a way to improve quality of software? Wow, um, of course. Is the obvious answer, of course. Um, 
but then you have to to sort of um how do you actually get your code and transform it into data that yeah. is analytically tractable um then then you have a sort of a translation problem because uh, you're going from code repositories and some have to treat them as data uh, and that's basically an nlp project mm-hmm. to a large extent but if we continue on the tesla track and just but, having but this, it can be done of course if you just have you know compare the two things let's make a self-driving car and you know that's an extremely complicated process of course but let's say you just want to do uh, uh, automatic parking or something yeah um, and you can have a set of engineers that are trying to program exactly the rules trying to define you know if you turn in this way then you can perfectly you know perform the parking and then the alternative of you know trying to just use data and learn it in some automated way Would you say that that's a, a fair uh, description of what machine learning is and, and a potentially better way to do it? Or I don't, I don't think machine learning is actually the way to go there. Um, now because we're getting interesting topics. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> definitely. I mean, I mean, because now we're veering into the sort of um, uh, general AI problematics of learning. Mm-hmm. Even for prog- uh, parking a car. You need general AI, you would say, for for parking a car. Um, I'm actually veering into topics that that sort of I don't really have have a word for. It, but um, I mean, I've been debating this with myself for the last six months, uh, and you can generalize learning, not in the terms of general AI as human intelligence, because that's very general. Sort of universal intelligence, mm-hmm. uh, but I can argue that point also. But yeah, it's certainly very general, more yeah. so than most deep learning. But but it, it, it comes back to my sort of view on on uh, how you do analysis. You have to include context, and if you can get an AI to understand the context of the problem it's there to solve, you have to generalize the learning for that environment not just the problem yeah not just memorizing but actually generalizing to handle yeah so it it, yes. it needs to learn the general patterns of the environment um as a i mean as a child learns to walk mm. it has to, has to learn its own environment uh, and then it can start applying then you can start applying sort of goals and rules uh, how you do that given the environment I mean, it has to know the environment. So That's parking, a parking a car is a key. Th- then you can probably define a f- quite sharp frame of that environment for that particular example, I guess. Or, I mean, you don't think parking a car is specifically difficult because you've done it for for quite quite a few years. But I mean, there's Tes- a Tesla car can do it quite well today already. Right? Yeah, in in defined situations. And that's the problem: is that you're not always going to have a school book example of a parking space. So, who, in average, who do you think parks a car the best, a human or a Tesla? Just you know, pure aggregated statistic point of view. No one. No, but I think I think the core cool point is people car park the cars like clowns <laughs> exactly. and idiots. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so let the Tesla then do it yeah. better. And, and that is and that is sort of one one of the, one of the interesting points about AI. 
uh, is that the notion of satisfying. The notion of what? Satisfying. Satisfying. What mean? Okay. You, what do you mean? Because if you're an agent moving in a space with other agents, those agents are going to make mistakes, and they're going to fuck up your perfect plan. Which means that you have to uh, deal with changing uh, circumstances and contingencies of other idiots doing mistakes. Which means that uh, you have to um, have a dynamic approach to your own priorities and how you actually approach what is an acceptable solution. But doesn't that apply for humans as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have to take care about all the assholes in the traffic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and we do that. Yeah. And doesn't machines do that, you would say? Or? No, because uh, machines are binary. I mean, you, either, either you, of course, you, you can put it on a gradient, yeah. uh, but mostly you have sort of a schoolbook example of this is how it should be done, this is how it should look. If it doesn't look that way, uh, relinquish control to the driver. Cool. So when do you, would you say that you, we, you think we will have level five self-driving cars that it doesn't even have a steering wheel in them? on the streets. That's a matter of legis- legislation rather than uh, technology, I think. So I think that the technology will be there quite sooner than the legislation will allow it to be implemented. But let's move into another another area here because I think let's go let's go a little bit into the the uh, um, the last minutes here on on real data science and and also thinking a little <laughs> bit about um I I think here we, we th- there is there is a conversation to be had around, you know, what, what is a data scientist in terms of the scientific approach of, of thinking about data versus what could be a, a, a machine learning um, engineer? Is there a difference? Yes. You think? I'll let you, uh, before I answer, perhaps you can give your view on it. You basically mean the difference between a no, data because we, we, and we are we are moving now into you know s- several. Uh, we are going a, a, a path into the um, world where data scientists, as a definition, was coined. I don't know, mm. ten years ago, I'm something more, like yeah. this. Much more than that, I think. But. Yeah, actually, I, we, because I remember we did the LinkedIn uh, survey of uh, Data Innovation Summit, and we we searched how many data scientists that we have on LinkedIn in Sweden in 2016. And then, of course, we had 600, something like this. Yeah, a couple of thousand. But then and then five years later or three years later, three years later. Yeah, so then then it was a, a ridiculous amount. To basically, you know, the the whole idea that, you know, people who were statisticians started to call themselves data scientists. People who were engineers started to call themselves data scientists. Yeah. I started to call myself data scientists. Yeah, I, I know that. And uh, have, you, have you taken it away yet? Or are you still calling yourself a data scientist? I think you are. Uh, yeah, I'm still calling myself data scientist. I'm thinking of actually changing into crazy old man. Crazy old man. <laughs> <laughs> no, because, because, because it's a little bit like, and this is no disrespect to any any way of looking at it because it's all needed. But it, it, I think we are starting to see also a distinct difference between truly driving uh, scientific m- methods of understanding and contextualizing uh, data and problems and actually using mathematical functions as a way to solve an engineering problem. And yeah. to me, it's not that's not the same. Definitely not. I mean, you have... Um the major dimension here to, to, to take into account is that um, science, as it is sort of 
done to general do. definition of science yeah uh, it's not a commercial enterprise science is done in academia which is a world of its own would you so, say that applies for tech companies as well yeah because uh, as soon as you take science into commercial enterprise the job description uh, changes you can't be a scientist in a commercial enterprise That's a strong statement. Yeah. I, I would uh, let, let, let's love to discuss well, that. Well, but of course, you as a scientist can fight back and try to do science within a commercial enterprise, of course, but it is not encouraged. You're well, talking yeah. about that on general uh, science, yeah, R&D. By, by the, by, by the sort of the, the What's the definition of science that can't be done in a commercial setting? Because in a commercial setting, you have constraints not found in academia. I mean... But is academia really problem-free when it comes to their oh, way no, of no, conducting no. science? No, 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 definitely not. So but, there but are pros and cons of academia and industry. Yeah, right? definitely. And 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 um, I'm not saying that the sort of the analysis done within commercial enterprises are in any way worse than in in academia. But the job descriptions and the constraints on on the different processes uh, are different, which means that. Um, you can't come from academia and expect a, a, a company to give you the same freedom as you have in academia. So just to, just if you go to any kind of top uh, AI conference today, you know the, the top uh, organization as it producing papers are like the Googles, the, the Facebooks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so the, this is the industry that's driving at least from a quantitative number of paper point of view. Uh, for example, the field of AI forward and. Uh, Then the question is, is that a good or bad thing? Um, is it moving the science in the right direction if industry now is leading this? Or you can answer... Yeah, of course, because then you, because you, you, have, you, you have the constant interplay um, between theory and practice. Yeah. I mean, um, in medieval times, people built bridges. The theory on bridges, on bridge building was rather poor. <laughs> I mean, uh, the theory didn't really sort of explain why build, why bridges worked and how they worked. But people build, built bridges, some of them are still standing today, um, but the theory is crap. Um, so you have, in some cases, practice is leading and the theory comes afterwards because you have sort of these practices work and, and sort of What do they do? They become a case study uh, in science. Uh, in other cases, you have uh, theorists leading uh, a certain frontier, uh, which is then picked up by um, practitioners. If we use terms like, you know... You and and in AI is, is, is because since the promise of automation is... There's so much dollars yeah. <laughs> attached to it. Um, of course the tech companies are going to take lead. Mm. And, I, and I don't think, I mean, academia has the kind of resources to actually make any sort of significant breakthroughs in AI. It's mm. going to come from the tech companies because they have so much on the line. So, but what are you trying to say now? Because when we're saying, oh, we can't do science or be scientific in the, in, in, in the, in the tech companies, I, I, to follow the conversation here, what are you trying to say compared to clearly they are coming up with the uh, practical breakthroughs? What's the difference here? What, what, cash what's, flow. What, 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 what's you the point? Cash, you have cash flow constraints. I mean, you can't spend, spend eternity in research and development. 
you have to produce results. So, so you're you're not making the distinction when when sort of general science or general um, research versus applied research for a very concrete topic, which is then commercially viable, I guess. Yeah, it that's the di- to, that's the distinction you're talking about. Yeah, you have different constraints. So, so what would you say if we just compare like basic science from applied science uh, and trying to say potentially academia is, is doing more of the basic science and perhaps the industry is doing more of applied science? Yeah. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. So um, what do you think a potential problem with um, the academia's type of basic science is? I'm not sure if you heard, uh, there was an interesting podcast with Jer- Jeremy Howard. He's the founder of Fast AI and previous president of Kaggle and whatnot. And he basically said um, uh, the majority of science in deep learning is a complete waste of time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and you can th- sort of think about you know why that is. W- what would you say that the main problem in academia? We, we can think, if we just think about the problems with science in industry and problems with science in academia, what are the problems in academia, you would say, with the science being performed there? Specifically AI type of science. <laughs> Big problem with academia is that it's an ivory tower. It's uh, isolated from everything else. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, you have an echo chamber of precious few people who are not communicating. They're not sort of anchored into a real world application. They're not even often dealing with the real world. They're doing simulated, <laughs> uh, simulated data. Do you think it's sufficient just to have applied science then, or, or is it still necessary to have this kind of detached kind of science you think it depends on your goals i mean uh, and this is sort of my, my take on, on on data science as it is sort of okay data as in machine learning data or data as in like science uh, experiment based type of data or both like actually because uh, when you move into a commercial uh, enterprise uh, with with the sort of time budgets and, and constraints you have you don't have time to complicate things which means that you have to go for uh, a satisfying a satisfying solution mm-hmm. which means that you have a model that's uh, so so it works it gives results it's better than guessing but perhaps not much but it works and it's cool <laughs> no, but i i think we have had this conversation before um the scientist in data scientist also in, implies to some degree that you should you should really use a scientific method you should have a scientific approach and in reality now when we are doing stuff which is more of a actually we are solving engineering problems and we are going about the process more in an engineering kind of way than in a sort of scientific kind of way so it's also a little bit misleading when we call someone a data scientist yeah. when you know the way we you know we we, we Engineering-wise, we've fulfilled our goal. It is good enough for this application. Uh, but but from a, you know, the, the the downside of that, like it becomes the whole topic of explainable AI, ethical AI, and also you know all the things that sort of the scientific approach brings in terms of validity, reliability, robustness uh, that sometimes maybe uh, gets missed or a little bit like depending on. How do we become a data scientist today? I know I, I can code Python. I, I can do this and this. And you have this, you know, the mathematical school, the, the guys that are the coders, and then you have the uh, more the statistician who would sort of argue for other, you know, do you, do you follow this sort of? Yeah, definitely. But you have, 
And this is also sort of one of the constraints of commercial enterprises is that your job description is decided by your managers. And if they don't know the complexities of the issues uh, they, sh- they are dealing with, which is all of the time in data science, uh, which means that the cheapest options and the easiest option uh, is to take a code monkey uh, with a smattering of, of statistics and you can just slap some, some statistical algorithm uh, on a chunk of data and produce results. Using mm-hmm. Utilizing existing frameworks. Yeah. I mean, and then you're done. Then you just have to sort of um, automate the pipeline uh, and put it into a, so the data stream into the model and and hey presto you have a dashboard <laughs> i mean i think the data science term is heavily abused it is heavily yeah. abused yeah. i think and that's the bottom line more of yeah. analysts engineers type of people calling themselves data scientists when it's not really the focus on the science aspect of, of yeah work. definitely and, and I, I mean i think the bottom line in this type of conversation is of course that we need both mm, and, and 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 ultimately you can make that whole idea even bigger to really understand data science is to understand the whole balancing act of the whole team yeah. who's the data pipeline engineer who's who's the guy who can put who can deploy stuff in, in uh, software engineer well robust code who can who can mod- model who can quality assure and, and, and you know so so it's a little bit like how many uh, scientists with a scientific approach do you need in relation to a number of ml engineers in relation to uh, pipeline engineers uh, i think th- I mean, this I think conversation we are having here Maybe now it starts to happen, but go back five, six years ago, and we didn't know what we were recruiting. Well, speaking organizationally, it's about the chemistry of the team. Because you can't put any sort of hard numbers on, on sort of uh, how, many, how many sort of statisticians do you need and how many uh, ML engineers do you need, how many data engineers do you need. Uh, it doesn't work out that, that way because, I mean... The way you do things in different different companies um, change the constraints, change the context. Um, but is it more than that? We should talk about data science as a function rather than a person or one specific it's role. A, it's a process. As a process, as a function, where you have several different competences. Yeah, I mean, I have a nice map of it. So it's interesting now that we, we're coming back to the fundamental challenge of the balancing of the yeah, team. Definitely. But going back a bit, perhaps, to your field of expertise in you know, the organizational structure as well. Yep. I mean, you have this map of different roles and you know, tasks basically needed to be done. How should you, this was a topic we discussed at, at some of my previous companies as well, how should you organize the teams in the best way? And, and you can think of different alternatives. One, one is to have like a centralized data science team working disconnected from like the product teams or whatnot. And then you can think of a more embedded kind of solution where you have data scientists being spread out through the different you know, product teams that you do have. Can, can you see any pros and cons with uh, those definitely. alternatives? Or how, uh-huh. sh- how should it be done? Yeah, definitely. Um, the easiest in terms of convenience is to have embedded data scientists or ML engineers in the, in, uh, the delivery teams. Uh, Why is this the easiest? Because I think... That because so- you can just put a guy in the team and... and, and he makes magic and it works. Um, it, it of course creates the problem because it puts the honors on the recruitment guys. You have to get the superheroes. 
And usually we can't afford them because they have really comfy positions elsewhere. I mean, like, and I think this question is really good because it's it's what you know. It it really also depends on the maturity yeah, uh, of the whole organization. Because I remember I hired, uh, we we worked, and and you become a data scientist, and we did exactly that. Yeah, I basically we didn't have what we needed. I couldn't wait, so I hired a data scientist team into the data and analytics teams in the city of states. <laughs> yeah, so we were sitting in the city of states in the business unit. And basically, let's go. Let's do this. Of course, now we are talking 2013, yeah. 12, 13, which essentially means that from a platform perspective, the Vattenfall data platform didn't exist. From an understanding that I need a guy now who, who, who I need to give all the different access of all the business unit data was never heard of. So, you know, so I, how, how long time did it take you and me to fix your access to all the data i think it was six months we never fixed it we never fixed it you see what i mean right I so still, i still don't have access to all the data so so even so basically not of course all data of Vattenfall, but within the business unit sitting in the management team still seeing uh, okay I, I really need to have the sap data i need to have the, this data this data this data and of course this role description or access ad role does not exist yeah. so it, it's a combination of all roles and so no we can't give that yeah. So it's it's a catch twenty two. So so here is like convenience. Yes, were we ready for that in two thousand thirteen? Were the organization ready for that? Not at all. Um, so then maybe if you put it higher, uh, you know, di digging it even all the way down into IT, meaning that sort of they have access because they're all admin, right? Uh, but but to put you with with those kind of access rights in the business in two thousand and thirteen. Mm -hmm was a quite interesting experience. To put it mildly. But back to the question then. So this is a convenient way, kind of hard if you're not mature and have organized your data or your platform so you can sort of in an easy I mean, way... You, you need really to know what guys you're putting in the delivery teams uh, to do all the sort of data science and the uh, ML engineering needed. Yeah. Uh, and that becomes an HR nightmare in, in terms of recruitment or talent management or talent acquisition rather. Yeah, so so the, so in in the in the city of states in the BU level yeah. to do the recruitment of a data scientist, HR can't help you. So you you need Usually. to have a manager who kind of needs to know a little bit. We knew each other. I know. I I was in the neighborhood of the field, so to speak. Yeah. So that's how it worked. Yeah, uh, and I think um, if you're going to be sort of concrete in terms of sort of uh, what can this map tell you uh, about how you should be doing, is that this map is prescriptive. Uh, I've put sort of the different functions and processes in the places where I think they belong. And if you're starting sort of a data science department or an analytics department or an AI department from scratch, you need to have an expert in the top management team. Because if you are going to invest in AI and machine learning in your company, you haven't done it before, it's going to be an uphill battle. And if you don't give it the investment and intention deserves, you're not going to succeed. So put a guy in the top management team who actually knows this shit. And if you don't know how, if you don't have the wherewithal in the top management team to actually recruit this guy, 
ask someone who does to help you with it. Because this is actually crucial. Because if you don't get the expertise into the top management team, you're fucked. So the problem is if you if you're recruiting this on a too low level as a one guy yeah. first in and the whole infrastructure is not there, the whole understanding for the different balancing of the different roles, you'll have a hard time to make it work. Yeah. So so you are saying then that the, so more importantly, if you go uh, where you organize it, I think Spotify is different because you're such a mature company. In terms it's, of and it's topics. a tech company, so it's, it's a tech company, right? Yeah, so, sure, the path. So, so, it, but um, so you basically say number one, uh, middle manager or quite high up, you need to have uh, someone who is taking point, who then starts organizing this at the same time. That's yeah. what you are saying. Uh, or if we sort of nuance the picture, this is sort of. Uh, if you want to make the push, if you make want to make the investment into becoming or sort of injecting uh, data science, uh, AI, machine learning into sort of the backbone of your of your enterprise, uh, you need to give it space in the top management team. Uh, you can start small scale, of course, in a, in a specific BU. Yeah, so then you need to be top management in the BU. Yeah, uh, and there you can sort of, if you if you can. If you want to sort of, uh, if you're a manager with, with sort of ambitions uh, and you want to sort of start a small scale to grow, um, you need to get in sort of uh, the space competence. Uh, top expertise. Top yeah. expertise. Yeah. Um, top expertise uh, into your business units to actually help you um, prove the concept that this actually works in our business processes. Yeah, because in the end, you, you need to be high enough so you come to the real business problem and the real, you know, what is making a business impact yeah. on the one hand. And on the other hand, you need then to have the um, translation expertise and however you solve it with experts. Yeah. But you need to start here to then start under, to really, you know, concretely concretize what value is. Yeah. And I think this is the this is the catch-22, that if you don't have that expertise in the domain in, in quite high up, you really don't know what you not don't know, so you don't really understand how you can basically yeah. look at this process more efficiently, more automated. Would you agree on this? I mean, like I think this when you see success with with Peltorion and stuff like that, what's the ingredients? Well, uh, I think competence, as we say, is the top blocker for any kind of yeah. transformation for a company to become more data and AI ready. Sure, and. Um, and as you say, to have that in top management team is crucial. Uh, but it also needs to be anchored throughout the organization, I would say, to, to make them understand what the potential is. Um, but so, so we basically need it to have spread out through the organization. The, you, know, you don't have to have need, uh, deep like AI skills, but you need to have the core concepts and the potential that you can have if you do it right. And that, that level of understanding is that's in, Another interesting sort of uh, dimension is that do you recruit for competence or for talent? Yeah, recruitment is another topic I'd love to get into. I spent yeah. so much time doing that, but um, uh, perhaps that's another day or type yeah. of discussion. I, I wish we could have some more technical stuff as well. With I th yeah, and I, th I think uh, I think it's uh, time to you know take a couple of questions to sort of round off uh, this session. Um, We're only half done. We're only half done. <laughs> oh, I, I think. Uh, for, for, we can continue after the session, but for for the viewers, I mean, like, w what is happening uh, now in your life? You know, 
you're working with with some key topics now in in, in the R and D space. I think it is at Vattenfall. Um, so um, I'm I'm one of the senior data scientists in in uh, the data analytics team. Uh, we have a growing team, and uh, we have two seniors now. We're getting a third one uh, fairly soon. It's actually um, the guy we had as a consultant earlier who's now uh, <laughs> waiting to downgrade to a full-time employee. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and that is sort of uh, setting the raising the maturity uh, of the team. We also have a lot of sort of trainees and juniors yeah. uh, coming in. So we have, we have a sort of a, a cool team. Yeah. And uh, w- what is the main uh, data questions or cases you've been working on lately? Um, I've spent the last year, actually, uh, dealing with smart heating of uh, uh, facilities. And um, and it sort of and, and it has reinforced my view that. Have you been involved in the Gustav Paris project? Yes, I have. So tell us a little bit about the Gustav Paris project. I'd rather not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> Let's not go there, um, because and, and that is sort of my, my 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 pet, my pet not the pet peeve my sort of. Uh, my sort of standard complaint is you have to give your tem- you have to give yourself time to distrust the data because it is not it is ambiguous i mean you have done something good but you as, a, as the scientists in you are not done yet i mean i, I it doesn't make sense yet and i i, I have a sort of that is one of my my my, so my my superpower is that i i know when it makes sense and until it does, until it makes sense, I'm not done. Uh, and that's sort of that must I, be frustrating for for the commercial bosses. Definitely, Mikkel is not done yet. I'm a pain in the ass. I mean, <laughs> my my sort of main contribution to enterprise, uh, I complicate things. Everything I do it makes things more complicated. So I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm sort of uh, with this map actually. I'm I'm painting myself out of a job because. Um, I don't really see a company that should hire me for what I actually good at because nobody has uh, the time, want to spend the time and attention for me doing what I'm good at, which is disambiguating data. But, no, but nobody has time for that. But the, the the core topic of disambiguating data must be one of the central themes when we talk about ethical AI. When yeah, we talk yeah. about you know. AI for good, that, that you know, that n- yes, we should do AI, we, we need to accelerate, we need to, we can't uh, fall behind, but at the same time do it right. That's, that's a hard story, right? Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's I mean, and data is always the problem. Data is always the key. Because whatever you do with the data, once it's sort of cleaned, that's fairly simple. Usually, because I mean, there are techniques, there are standards. So you you, you feel like the, the bottom line challenges now. When we're talking about the, some of the core challenges in the corporate world. is is going to be about getting the talent 
in order to understand what you need to organize and and, and build, yeah. and then ultimately the data itself to really get that to the to the state it needs to be in to do proper machine learning or stuff yeah, like I mean, this. Yeah, definitely. If you have time, sort of good in <laughs> go into sort of the the esoteric of epistemology and, and ontology, and then. Uh, the, the, the whole, the, we, we have another conversation here about knowledge graphs, ontology, and, and, and uh, the, whole, the, the semantic web. Yeah, the philosophy of science and sociology of knowledge. Yeah, but that will be the next, uh, I think that has to be the next session. Yeah, we can start a new series. We, need, uh, we I have one last question. We, if you would want to recommend someone to, uh, to join this sort of um, uh, show, uh, who would you recommend as the next guest? Uh, we have you now. Who, who do you think would be interesting guests? And uh, on all, you know, as we say, leaders, politicians, experts, philosophers, in the realm, in the realm of data science, of data and AI. I think I should put that guy on the spot. I <laughs> see <laughs> so you, you, you're, you're pointing at Goran. Yeah. And why do you say Goran? Yeah, I think that's not a bad idea, actually. But why do you think Goran uh, should be there? Um, because he has a very rare talent and a very unique set of skills. That's um, going to be really, really useful for, for most companies. Which are? I, I haven't seen this, by <laughs> the way, Goran. <laughs> I haven't seen it. No, um, and, and that's about um, talent acquisition, talent management, uh, and sort of uh, knowing. I mean, it's it's a fairly small world we're living in. I mean, uh, the talents are fairly easily counted, uh, and of course, then it has to be a sort of. Uh, talent in a given situation. I mean, uh, one genius, one person could be a genius in one situation and uh, an idiot in another. I, I think that I understand now uh, what you're after. So basically what he's pointing out is the, uh, the importance of HR in this uh, yeah. in recruitment in this whole concept. And I think we have a couple of people. We have actually a conference next week on people analytics. And oh, yeah. I can bring some people in here because I think that this is very important. Me and Mikael have been discussing this quite a long time. And I know that you're passionate about this, yeah. Andesh, as well. Recruitment, uh, both me and Mikael see this as a very, very important part, so uh, especially in the next, um, I think, six to 10 years. is going to be deficit of people. It's going but to be change of uh, organization. And after the whole corona that. period, you yes. know, it's yeah. the recruitment is yeah. key. And, 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 and this whole, and, and now we go, we, we're coming back to the core, 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 core uh, bottom line challenges. It's about talent that, or competences we are saying in this area. And no, if you don't. Not competence. Competence can be acquired. But the core talent. Talent has to be born yeah. and cultivated. So, but in, in the, what is lacking in, in, in terms of the company that wants to do the journey is lacking of the right skill sets in one hand, both on leadership level and, and expert level. And then we, and then going into that, uh, we are also coming into the fundamental, uh, you know, adaptability and flexibility and building cultures, building a learning organization. So to me, it's like we've been talking 50% HR related topics, yeah, yeah, yeah. the whole conversation 
that was supposed to be yeah. about Julia. We yeah, well, mm. that's my fault. I mean, uh, <laughs> I do I do put a fairly strong emphasis on on people. Yeah, and, and uh, I think that what is it? Data and AI is not about robots. It's about people. Yeah, and ultimately, people building and designing robots. AIs, yeah, I mean, and I mean, using, using them, I mean, without using the, them yeah, managing without, them. Without the people, AI will just be automated incompetence. Yeah, <laughs> that's another one. That's a quote. Automated incompetence, right? AI. You heard, you heard it here first. Yeah, yeah, yeah love it. <laughs> Damn it, we didn't get to talk about Julia. Yeah, that's can, very annoying for me. As that well. was that was a little bit annoying. Yeah. Do you want to take that route to, to go a bit tech and, and programming? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, so um, how did you get started with Julia, and what do you think is good or bad about it? First off, I'm a weirdo. Uh, I like trying um, rather outlandish things. Uh, I think I'm one of the few people who actually said "fuck you" to QWERTY keyboards and go for Dvorak. Mm. Oh, I like it really. So Without having the actual uh, signs on the keys. Yeah, as well. yeah, yeah. yeah first, good. So uh, I'm weird that way. And when I got what is it? <laughs> what are we talking about here? Is you nerd. It's, 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 it's a different keyboard layout. Well, and was was it called Dvorak? And what Dvorak? And what's what is the layout in a nutshell for us who haven't seen it? Can we, vowels, we can Google it? Yeah, you, you have vowels on the left hand, you have consonants on the right hand, basically. The query is the, you know, these kind of keys here. And is it still a straight uh, keyboard flat, or is it an, another shape? But still a flat it's keyboard. It's the same keyboard. Same keyboard, but the layout. The, you have to press the same physical keys. But it's another, another layout of the yeah. actual keys. So clear. The letters are not in the same place that you are used to. So if I used your computer, I would be very annoyed. Yes, <laughs> for several reasons. <laughs> cool. anyway, so, let's, so, go, yes. let's go back, let's go so, back. Uh, so Julia, uh, I got fed up with, with R because once I started sort of outgrowing uh, my competence as an R user and I want to go into R programming uh, and I looked under the hood and I realized, fuck this shit. This is f- a 40-year-old code base, not at all architected for modern enterprise, modern problems. So I started looking around and I found Julia, which is sort of um, a new, very promising language, which is, and and the main draw for me is that it's a one-stop shop for data science. You don't need any other language. It works as a glue language, it works as a production language, it works as a um, prototyping language, um, and so most importantly, you agree? Most, okay. most importantly of all, I uh, get it. You understand it? Yeah. yeah, I love Julia. I still hate Python. I mean, I think most people have a lot of uh, opinions about this, and, and Python is certainly uh, the, the, the most fun to, to rant about, and there's so many problems with it, for sure. Still, it's a number one language of all the world today overtaking java just like a year ago too yeah know. and 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 the, and the snowball effect of course when when you have more frameworks when there's more content simply mm. you're drawn into the, yeah, the pool the third, of content the party libraries of course is, is bringing uh, yeah. you know, python into the front but okay so so what would you say if you just for people that don't know what julia is how, how would you describe it compared to for example python <laughs> wow um, I'm not a programmer, so I don't really know. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, v- I'm, a very, I'm fairly intuitive when it comes to programming languages. I mean, either I get them or I don't get them. And I mean, I'm, I get Julia. Uh, I got Java. I got Ruby. Mm-hmm. I didn't get Python. I still don't. 
I still have residual anger when I have to use <laughs> Python. Um, so um, I, don't, I don't know really know why uh, I love Julia, mm. which works for me. Uh, the mindset of Julia is is um, it, it fits my kind yeah. of weirdness. And it is a weird language. But and, and then no. in practicalities, they're good at different things, right? I mean, like Julia is stronger on paralyzed. I, I don't, this is way over my Julia take rate. Julia is great at everything. <laughs> <laughs> now, now he's a, well, yeah, that's, that's true. That I'm is my very I, unbiased, objective uh, yeah. opinion. <laughs> yeah, I have a number of friends and colleagues, so they, they love Julia as well. And then they forced to work with Python during daytime. And, and um, that's an unfortunate situation, perhaps. And, yeah. and I wish we, we could have a situation where we could ease, more easily switch out to. Actually, and, and this, is, this is one actually has a corollary. Um, to how you organize your data science process is that if you want to if you want to attract top talent, uh, you have to allow them their quirks, their weirdness. Uh, I mean, if they love computing in Lisp yeah. or Haskell or any other weird language, fucking let them. But can okay, you do but, that but on all me, on all areas? Uh, let me follow up. If you were to start a new startup, a new company, and you were to hire people, and you were going to do some kind of AI related kind of product or service. What uh, tech stack would you recommend to them? Would you recommend Julia? Is not all the, all the different stacks can do what you want. You can make them do what you want. So it doesn't fucking matter. Get people who know their shit and let them do their thing using their own platform. But will that scale all the all the way? When you go into the data factory mindset and you're trying to standardize yeah, and do does, DevOps, because, DataOps, Yeah, because you, st you still have to have sort of handover from, from prototyping to the production. Yeah, so you, you're now talking about prototyping is done here and then how you code it yeah, in the end is something else. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, Julia does have uh, the advantage that you can prototype and do production models in the same language. But you could easily do the prototyping with the, with, the, with the scientists over here. And then when you decide to productionize it, containerize it, yeah. whatever code is the standard or software engineering or code. Or port it some, some other it. language. I mean, uh, it does take some effort, but in the grand scheme of things, the most important thing is to retain your talent. And if they get fed up because they have downgraded to Python, <laughs> <laughs> then you're doing yourself a disservice. I mean, yeah. it's better to in, than invest the resources. So we, are, we, are separating, the we are separating the tech stack now from the exploratory modeling prototyping versus when you're now validating something and deploying it to production. Yeah, you're but not the boss of me. <laughs> I'll keep talking. He's, he's <laughs> the boss of the streaming today, Mikael. So <laughs> yeah. in this way, he will, he will cut it. Uh, I mean, um, there are so many things to say about this, and I certainly agree a lot with, with what you say, that we should let people have the, their environment that they can be most productive in and, and have most passion for. But that also, you know, comes back to your kind of PhD work, I think, about, you know, adaptability and efficiency. Definitely. And, and then if you let everyone do whatever they want, then mm. that wouldn't be very efficient. And um, then you mm. have, you know, potentially the prototyping can be done differently. But if everyone in a, like an R&D team did things with different tech stacks that wouldn't be very efficient either, right? In an R&D environment, that's not a huge issue because it's not about efficiency, it's about exploration. 
Animation. So you don't think working together like in an R&D team is important as well? Or? Um, but if you go to the, sort of the DevOps route, when the DevOps route, when you need to sort of integrate R&D and production into operations, um, then yes, you have to have people on, on sort of both sides of the DevOps um, chasm open mm. to options. Um, you have to have at least supporting staff that can translate your stuff uh, mm. to other realms or domains. Yeah. I mean, these are super difficult questions for sure. And yeah, finding the I right mean, balance. I think this is the core of the essence of your PhD, really. You know, how do you find the right and balance between adaptability and yeah, efficiency? And that is sort of as a, the, lia- uh, the liaison functions in an enterprise is um, you have to give them attention because that's what makes things work. Mm. I mean, you have a bunch of super specialists who are great at what they do, but don't have anyone to coordinate them. Then you're fucked. So, and, and, and I think it's also highlighting you also the data science or uh, life cycle or process here. Like to really, uh, it is a process of exploration, uh, f- fix the model, train the model, validate the model, and then deploying the model. And clearly here, of course, you are moving from one core competence into, in the end, hardcore software engineering, even if it's machine learning engineering. So you're building a, a, a robust product in the end. This is a different thing than the exploration piece. That's, uh, I think that's w- one of my takeaways when I yeah. listen to you. I mean, and I'm I, not as t- geeky as you guys are on this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the translation between sort of the exploration uh, process and uh, the production process that's sort of the fingerspitzgefühl um, of uh, strategic importance. What do you actually move from R&D to production? I mean, the guys in R&D shouldn't be allowed to do that choice because they're weirdos. Uh, and the guys in production can't do it because they're, they have tunnel vision, which means that it has to be... Um, decision uh, up top. Cool. I think we're running out of time, but let yeah. me ask a final question. Yeah. If you were to give a recommendation for a company that is perhaps not a super techie company today, but I guess you assume or are saying that most companies have not sufficient adaptability today and they should gain more, <laughs> yeah. right? What would you recommend them to do to be more adaptive? Uh, well, the easy choice is, of course, hire me as a consultant. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's a great end quote, actually. <laughs> no, no, a, let's finish on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking hire me! <laughs> I'll tell you what you need to do. Cool. Take care. Okay. Thanks, guys.